0: Take your Bibles out this morning and turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 5 as we return to the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5. What can wash away my sin? Looking this morning at the beatitude on purity. And scholars point out to us as I will cover in our points this morning the three different aspects to this word purity and what God does Uh, in our lives, covering both the past, the present, and the future aspects of our salvation. And each one of the points this morning will represent that flow. Would you stand, please? Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Father, we're reminded in the Beatitudes that they cover the inward character that you want us to have so that we can be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Lord, where we do not possess these Beatitudes our witnesses' salt and light will be compromised. So help us to understand as we go through this list of Beatitudes that you are first and foremost concerned about our inward nature. Because it's from our heart that is going to flow the issues of life. Teach us that today, we pray in Jesus' name. In 1982, the Los Angeles Times carried the story of Anna Mae Pinnika, a 62-year-old woman who had been blind from birth. At age 47, she married a man that she had met in her Braille class. And for the first 15 years of their marriage, he did the seeing for both of them until he completely lost his sight also. He lost his sight due to retinitis pigmentosa. Mrs. Pinnika had never seen the green of spring or the blue of the sky. She had never seen a beautiful sunrise or a beautiful sunset over the water. Yet because she had grown up in a loving, supportive family, she was never resentful and she always displayed a very cheerful, benevolent spirit. Then in October of 1981, Dr. Thomas Pettit of the Jules Stein Eye Institute of the University of California at Los Angeles performed surgery to remove the rare congenital uh, cataracts from the lens of her eyes. And Mrs. Pinnocka saw for the first time ever. Now the newspaper account doesn't record what her initial response was, but it does tell us that she found that everything was so much bigger and brighter than she had ever even imagined. While she immediately recognized her husband and others that she knew very well, She said that other acquaintances surprised her. They seemed taller or shorter or fatter or skinnier than she had pictured them to be. Since that day, Mrs. Pinnica has hardly been able to wait to get up in the morning. She wakes up with an excitement. She splashes her face and eyes with water, puts on her glasses, and she enjoys the morning light. Her vision now is... Is 2030 good enough that she's been able to get a driver's license? Think about when Mrs. Pinnica opened her eyes and she saw for the first time. Think of seeing some of the beautiful uh, backyard birds of the West Coast. the, The male hooded oriole the nutmeg mannequin, the yellow-breasted chat, so many other beautiful birds there on the west coast or many of the beautiful flowers they have growing along the highways. She's been able to witness all of that. And it reminds us that the gift of our physical sight is indeed a wonderful gift. And yet, folks, there is a seeing, there is a vision that is far beyond what Mrs. Penicka experienced. It is the sight of seeing God. Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, there's a tragedy in all of this. The tragedy of Mrs. Pinnika's miracle, according to the doctor who performed her surgery, is that the technique that he used to to restore her sight was available and practiced all the way back into the 1940s. And that means that Mrs. Pinnika had lived nearly her entire life needlessly blind. If only somebody would have told her sooner. The greater tragedy still is that many go through life and then through eternity and they will miss out on what Jesus is promising here. To see God. If only somebody had told them. And that's my responsibility this morning, and it's your responsibility as we leave the doors of this church. Now, I've got to admit, as I studied for the message this morning, I have found that the exposition of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones is so incredibly helpful. Out of all the commentaries and books I've consulted this week, the temptation for me this morning would simply be to get up here and read verbatim his sermon out of the Sermon on the Mount on this particular beatitude. Dr. Jones was a medical doctor, a cardiologist turned minister. He followed the great G. Campbell Morgan in the pulpit of the Westminster Chapel in London, England. Not the Westminster Abbey where you see the royal family getting married. But down the road, the Westminster Chapel, one of the most famous pulpits of modern time. It'd be my temptation to get up here and simply add his words to my words. But since he always preached for at least an hour, if I preached his sermon, then mine, you may not be so good with that today. But what I do want to do is follow the flow of thought that he gives us. The broad flow of thought of this beatitude. This morning we're going to see that in this one beatitude, perhaps more than all the others, that this beatitude is the very essence of all of the teaching of both the Old and the New Testaments. The entire Bible is about redemption. And one day the people of God ending up in a garden where the book of Revelation tells us that we will be with God and He will be with us and sin's dreaded curse will forever and ever and ever be erased. Now how can you and I be a part of that and see that? This beatitude has something to tell us about that. First thing I want you to notice with me this morning is the affairs of the heart. The affairs of the heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. Folks, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read all four Gospels and what will you see? You will see that the Gospels are concerned about the heart of a man, the heart of a woman. You see, Jesus encountered a Judaism of his day as he encountered the scribes and the Pharisees. They emphasized just the opposite. They emphasized the outer shell of a man and what his religion looked like from the outside. That's why Jesus said on one occasion of them, Your whitewashed tomb's full of dead men's bones. And he said to his disciples that uh, later on in this chapter, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. The Bible is concerned with the heart. I want you to turn with me over to Mark chapter 7 because in Mark chapter 7, let's read about an encounter Jesus had with the religious establishment where he pointed out this very thing. Beginning in verse 1 of Mark chapter 7, it says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition." then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said what comes out of a person is what defiles him for from within out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. Matters of the heart, affairs of the heart. An example, just like we've just read, would be their their obsession with outer religion as it has to do with hand-washing. Just that one thing, hand-washing. Listen to what Dr. William Barclay says about that. He says, the scribes and Pharisees accused the disciples of Jesus of eating with unclean hands. The Greek word is koinos. Ordinarily koinos simply means common and then it comes to describe something that is profane as opposed to sacred things and finally it describes something as it does here which is ceremonially unclean and unfit for the service and worship of God. There were definite and rigid rules for the washing of hands. Now note that this hand washing was not in the interest of hygienic purity. It was ceremonial cleanness which was at stake. Before every meal and between each of the courses, the hands had to be washed. And they had to be washed in a certain way. Could you imagine going to dinner and between all the various courses of the meal even, having to get up and go through a ceremonial cleaning? The hands to begin with had to be free of any coating of sand or mortar or gravel or any such substance. The water for washing had to be kept in special large stone jars so that it itself was clean in the ceremonial sense and so that it might be certain that it had been used for no other purpose and that nothing had fallen into it or been mixed with it. First, the hands were held with the fingertips pointing upwards. The water was poured over them and must run at least down to the wrist. The minimum amount of water was one quarter of a log, which was equal to one and a half eggshells full of water. While the hands were still wet, each hand had to be cleansed with the fist of the other. That's what the phrase about using the fist means. The fist of one hand was rubbed into the palm and against the surface of the other. This meant that at this stage the hands were wet with water. But that water was now itself unclean because it had touched unclean hands. And so secondly, the hands had to be held with the fingertips pointing downwards. And the water had to be poured over them in such a way that it began at the wrist and ran off the fingertips... After all that had been done, the hands were finally pronounced clean. Now note that to fail to do this was in Jewish eyes not to be guilty of bad manners, not to be dirty in a health sense, but to be unclean in the sight of God. The man who ate with unclean hands was subject to the attacks of a demon called Sheeptah. To omit so to wash the hands was to become liable to poverty and destruction. Bread eaten with unclean hands was no better than excrement. A rabbi who once omitted the ceremony was buried in excommunication. Another rabbi, imprisoned by the Romans, used the water given to him for his hand washing rather than for drinking, and in the end he nearly perished of thirst because he was determined to observe the rules of hand-washing rather than to satisfy his thirst. That, to the Pharisee and the scribe, was religion. Jesus came along and challenged that and said, No, 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 no. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. No wonder Jesus told the Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as you are yourselves. And then Jesus followed that up by calling them blind guides. Now folks, the point of all of that is that they miss the whole matter of the heart. The Old and New Testaments both aren't talking about simply looking right on the outside. They're talking about being right on the inside. And if the inside is right before God, then the outside will be taken care of. Now with that said, what does the Bible mean by the heart? Blessed are the pure in heart. Is the heart only this muscle inside of my chest and your chest that keeps beating and keeps us alive moment by moment? Is that simply what the Bible is talking about? This muscle No, it's talking about the whole inward character of a man. Everything about his insides, his will, his emotions, his character. And that is why the Bible can say, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Now I do want to loosely quote Dr. Jones here. He says the tragic fallacy of the last hundred years has been to think that that all of a man's troubles are simply due to his environment. And so all you have to do to change the man is to do nothing more than to move him to a new environment. He says that way of thinking overlooks the fact if you and I in our minds go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. All the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. What do we see? That God created everything and pronounced it as good and finally very good. And he created a perfect environment and put the first couple, Adam and Eve, down in that perfect environment. You couldn't have had a better environment. Sin hadn't entered the world yet. The fall had not happened. That's not until Genesis 3. And so Adam and Eve enjoyed a perfect, pristine environment unlike anything you and I have ever witnessed yet. And in that environment, they fell into sin. You see, Jesus said, out of the heart comes evil. Jeremiah the prophet said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can trust it? You see, this is where the gospel is in the Beatitudes. Folks, now don't miss what I'm about to say here, okay? God demands a purity of heart if I am ever to see Him, and yet the Bible tells me that my heart is wicked, not only wicked, but desperately wicked, and, 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 Out of our heart, all of our problems in life, whether they're problems of relationships, murders, hatred, divisions, adulteries, on and on we could go with a laundry list. Everything that's wrong with you and I, all the bad that you and I ever encounter arises out of our heart. The Bible says the heart of every human is wicked. Just read Romans 1 through 3 that is setting up the guilt of mankind. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And yet at the same time, the Bible says only the pure in heart will see God. I trust you can see where I'm going with this. You and I have got a problem. A big problem. Either you did have a problem or you still do have a problem. You see, you and I cannot be what God commands if we're going to go to heaven. Only God can make you and I pure in heart. 1 Peter 3:18 says the just died for the unjust that he might bring us to God. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Answer that question for me. Come on. What can wash away my sin? What can make me whole again? This is all my hope and peace, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Only God through Jesus Christ can make a man's heart pure. In Isaiah 1, God says, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are red like scarlet, they can be as white as snow. Folks, what the gospel does is take us out of this terrible pit that we're in and it raises us up into the heavenlies only through Christ. Purity is, first of all, a supernatural matter. It is a matter of the heart. It is a heart transplant that God does in my life and your life. Jeremiah talked about that in the Old Testament. He said the day is coming, speaking of the new covenant, that the new covenant was not going to be like the old. In the new covenant, God would take your stony heart out and replace it with a heart of flesh. He was talking about conversion. Being born again. Has that happened in your life? If it hasn't, then the Bible's record of your life and my life would be that you are not yet pure in heart and you are not on your way to see God. Conversion has got to take place first in the heart. Faith is not simply a matter of outward things we do like the scribes and the Pharisees, but our righteousness has to go beyond theirs. We've got to be pure in heart from the inside out first. God gives us a pure heart through redemption. Second thing I want you to see the amplification of purity. Greek scholars tell us the richness of this word purity, that another meaning of this word purity has the idea of being single, single-minded, not divided, unhypocritical, not two-faced in any way, a sincere faith a pure faith you see one of our problems is that we're so double minded we're play actors so oftentimes. now in the ancient Greek drama play acting was good Uh, one person would play multiple parts and as they were going out on the stage they had posts there with pegs on it and different masks and you would grab a mask and in one act you might be the star And then in the next act, when you came out, you took another mask and you might be the bad guy, the villain. And you were called a hypocrite. A play actor who was talented enough to wear two different faces. But then it came to mean something bad through time. Like in John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress, where he says, Look at there, there comes Mr. Facing Both ways. Now, how about that for a name? How would you like to be called Mr. or Mrs. Facing both ways? Double minded. James 4.8 says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The problem with man's heart to a large degree is that we're so earthly minded we're no heavenly good. It used to be said many, many decades ago of the church that the church was so heavenly minded it was no earthly good. I'm not sure that could be said of the church anymore. In the western world and increasingly in the world at large, materialism has so taken over and dominated the human mind and because of that we run the danger even in the church that we're not pure in heart anymore in this sense of being single-minded. Over and over again, Jesus in the New Testament calls us back to a single focus. In Matthew 6, he cautions us to have a single eye. He goes on in chapter 6 to say that we are to store up our treasures in heaven and not on the earth. And then he goes on finally in chapter 6 to say we are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In all of those ways, God is calling on His people to be different. He's calling on us to be pure, pure in this sense of single-minded. Even in the Old Testament, the psalmist said in Psalm 86, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I might walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart. You and I need purity in the sense of having an undivided heart. Folks, I know how difficult this is. Because we live in the world. But this morning, you and I need to realize this next week, we need to be far more single-minded and focused on God and the kingdom of God than we even are on paying our bills. Now, don't misunderstand me. Pay your bills. Be a good way. Don't go out of church this morning and say, Hey, my preacher said I'm not to pay my bills. That's not what I'm saying at all. You and I are very focused in, zeroed in, I hope at least, on paying our bills. But the Bible says we're to be even more focused on something else. We're to be more focused on having a single-minded purity of heart that seeks first God's kingdom and His righteousness what can wash away my sin what can make me whole again this is all my hope and peace nothing but the blood of Jesus this is all my righteousness nothing but the blood of Jesus You see, the same God that cleanses us in redemption is the same God that in our everyday Christian life gives us the power and His presence that we can live the way He desires us to live. But we're not done with this word purity yet, on the amplification of it, unless you think I'm making too much of it. The Greek scholar A.T. Robertson, one of our own is Southern Baptist. For decades and decades and decades now, his work in the Greek language is still a standard in seminaries all over the world. And when he deals with this beatitude and talks specifically about purity, he cautions us not to be too limited. He cautions us that we need to turn this word and, and look at all the different nuances to it and not limit it. He says purity here has the widest sense and in includes everything. What's the next sense? The next sense is the obvious that you would think of with purity and it's cleanness. Cleanness. Is your life clean this morning? Is your life pure before God? Now remember what Jesus said, everything, all the sins committed that we read about in the headlines. Where does it start? It starts in the heart. Is your heart clean before God? Hebrews 12 says, strive for peace with everyone and for the purity, the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You won't see God without. Does purity matter to God? Absolutely. Some of you are studying the book of Revelation right now. John closes in Revelation chapter 22, quoting Jesus. Jesus says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to eat of the tree of life and that they may enter by the city gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Purity, cleanness. What do you watch? What do you listen to? You know, I realize as we go through the world and, and all the temptations and challenges that we face in, in this idea of purity from the standpoint of cleanness, I think the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 probably best represents the struggle that even a believer has. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Can you relate to that? Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil is close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so Paul goes on to say, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He not only redeems us, but he empowers us to live a life of cleanness. God does it. But it doesn't mean that you and I are off the hook with nothing to do and that's why I read the passage at the beginning of the service that I did where Paul says, if then you have been raised up with Christ seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God mortify the deeds of the flesh and be clothed with the things of God. God does it. God enables you. But you too have to mortify anything unclean in your life. Third thing I want you to see about purity, and then I'll sit down, is the anticipation of the pure in heart. What does he say here about that? He says, for they, and again the sense is, they and they alone shall see God. What in the world are we to make of this? This is a matter that has been much written about since the early church fathers who occupied themselves spilling a lot of ink, what it means. What is Jesus talking about here? Now, folks, this is where I will quote Dr. Jones because I don't think I can improve upon what he says. Lengthy quotation. He says, now, it seems to me that ultimately that is a question that cannot be answered. The question of the meaning of this promise... I can only put the evidence before you. There are statements made in scripture which seem to indicate either one of, one or the other. On one occasion, God was going to give Moses a vision of himself, but told him that he should see only his back, suggesting that to see God is impossible. Then you remember the statements made by our Lord himself. He turned to the people and said on one occasion, You've neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his shape. Again he said, Not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God. He hath seen the Father, speaking obviously about himself. And then again on another occasion Jesus said, He that has seen me has seen the Father. Lloyd-Jones writes, This is what Scripture says on the matter, and it does seem to me that on the whole it is unprofitable to spend our time on it. We just don't know. The very being of God is so transcendent and eternal that all of our efforts to arrive at an understanding are doomed at the very outset to failure. Scripture itself seems to say, or seems to me, and I say this with reverence, does not attempt to give us an adequate conception of the being of God. Why? Because of the glory of God. Our human terms are so inadequate and our minds are so small and finite that there is a danger in any attempt at a description of God and His glory. All we know is that there is this glorious promise that in some way or another the pure in heart shall indeed see God. He goes on. I suggest, therefore, that it means something like this. As with all the other Beatitudes, there's the promise that is partly fulfilled here and now. In a sense, there's a vision of God even while we're in this world. The Christian can see God in nature, whereas the non-Christian doesn't. He's blind to it. The Christian sees God in the events of history. But there's a seeing also in the sense of knowing him, a sense of feeling he is near and enjoying his presence. Another way we see him is in our own experience in his gracious dealings with us. Do we not say that we see the hand of our Lord upon us in this and that? Surely that too is part of seeing God. But of course, he writes, that is a mere nothing as compared as to what is yet to be. Now we see through a glass darkly, but then we shall see face to face. As John writes in 1 John 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Jones says, this is surely the most amazing thing that has ever been said to man. That you and I, such as we are, pressed with all the problems and trials and tribulations of this modern world, we are going to see Him face to face. But if we grasp this, it would revolutionize our very lives. You and I are meant for the audience chamber of God. You and I are being prepared to enter into the very presence of the One who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Do you realize the day is coming when you are going to see the blessed God face to face, not as in a glass darkly, but then face to face. Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What can wash away all my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me this morning. It's God in Christ and His shed blood that saves us and makes us pure to begin with. It's God in Christ that allows you in your daily life to live single-minded and clean. And it is God in Christ who will one day take his uh, His beloved home to see Him face to face. As King David said in Psalm 23, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place he who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully I want you to think of that question this morning who shall ascend the hill of the Lord this morning do you need Christ the just who died for the unjust, that He might bring you to God. Come to Him. Could there be even one in this building this morning that the Spirit of the living God has been working on your heart perhaps for a few days or a few weeks? Or maybe just this morning convicting you of your sin and your need of Christ and drawing you to Christ. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you to step out during the invitation. Come forward. I'd love to pray with you. Perhaps today as somebody who's already had that experience, you need to refocus. You need to be pure in the sense of being single-minded. Physically, Paul says in the book of Philippians, it's as if we have one foot in the world and one foot in heaven. And he doesn't say it in a bad way. He just points out that's reality. We are citizens of two worlds. But he said while we're citizens of two worlds in the flesh, we're to live in this world as citizens of heaven. That's purity. Single-minded. Maybe you'd say, oh, I've been made pure in the sense of I know my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. I'm saved. But maybe this morning, your heart cry to God needs to be, God, make me pure in the sense of single-mindedness. I'm a double-minded man, double-minded woman. Help me, God. Finally, think about the cleanness of your heart or purity in that, in that aspect. Think about your mind, your feet, your hands, your eyes, your ears. Are you feeding on things that are pure? We're to reflect on those things that are lovely and true, Philippians 4.8 says. And Christian, remember today. Remember where you are ultimately headed. What is the supreme motivation for living clean and single-minded? It is the fact that you and I are meant for the audience chamber of God. What an awesome thought. God, I pray that you would make us pure. In every sense of the word. Jesus said blessed are the pure for they shall see God. Do the work that only you can do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.